1: This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In some parts of the United States, kids have been going back to school. In some, they are not. Well, not to a building anyway. And one thing it was hoped for across the board was that the new school year would see to it that kids would be getting the food they need. But are they? Billy Shore is the founder and executive chair of Share Our Strength, the parent organization for the No Kid Hungry campaign. Since funding Share Our Strength in 1984 with his sister, Debbie, Billy has led the organization in raising more than $700 million to fight hunger and poverty. Billy, good to talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me back, Bill. We've got a new report on food insecurity from the United States Department of Agriculture. And since that's breaking news, why don't we start with that? What does it show?
2: Yeah, Gil, the report just came out. Uh, it's an annual report. It's something that we look to to gauge progress every year. It focuses on the year calendar year 2019, so it does not reflect everything that happened with covid Uh, But what it shows is that there had been tremendous progress. And uh, a year ago, 5.3 million children were considered food insecure. Today, that number is somewhere between 10 and 16 million. So it's, you know, you can both see the tremendous progress that had been made by the anti-hunger community and by a strong economy. And now you can see how so much of that progress has been reversed
1: and we're entering a tough period right now because this was supposed to be the beginning of the school year again in some places it is some places it isn't but that's a problem either way because for some parents needing to go back to work just to get you know the rent paid or the, or the car payment much less food has meant not being able to be there to make sure their kids have lunch whether at home or at school where you know you would depend on the kids getting lunch, either free programs or reduced cost programs through their school. In some places, the cutbacks are such that that's not available.
2: Uh, Some 30 million kids in America depend on school meals, uh, 22 million of them low income. And now with schools either closed or open in hybrid fashion, finding ways to feed those kids has been enormously complex. I I spoke with a woman named Maribel Garcia, who is the superintendent of schools in Almonte, California? That's about 45 minutes inland from Los Angeles, and they are doing complete virtual learning. And so the kids who uh, depended on school meals have to have their mom or their dad come to one of three school buildings. They've got 14 schools in the district, but three of them are serving meals. And the good news is a mom or dad could come and get as many as five breakfasts, five lunches and five after school snacks and take them home for the week. But uh, other schools, kids are coming one or two days a week and they're being fed in school during the days that they're there. And then we've got to find ways to feed them. Uh, So because the need is so enormous uh, here at Share Our Strength, and this has been unprecedented for us, uh, our No Kid Hungry campaign has made grants of twenty seven million dollars in the last 10 weeks to make sure that schools and school districts and community organizations have what they need to feed kids, whether it's the personal protective equipment or transportation or staffing or refrigeration, we will actually spend another $35 million in the next 10 weeks ahead to ensure that schools continue to have these resources. So that's been the primary commitment of Share Our Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign.
1: Yeah, and even schools that are reopened are facing budget cuts because You know, municipalities, counties, states were not getting as much in taxes from people working and buying things. So there's cutbacks at schools and inevitably that's across the board and affects food service people and expenses. So some districts are just not set up to
2: handle what's coming at them. No, that's right. State and local budgets have been decimated. And uh, unfortunately, although there's no way that the, the charitable philanthropic sector by itself can make up for those services, uh, the good news is that there's been this outpouring of support. Many Americans, I think, for the first time really started to understand when they saw pictures like that picture at the food bank in San Antonio with thousands of cars lined up they realized that many of their neighbors and fellow citizens were struggling. And so our organization, and I know others have received an outpouring of generosity, but uh, again, there's no way that we can equal what the public sector needs to do. Um, Some of the good things that have happened is that uh, Congress initially had passed something called Pandemic EBT, uh, the SNAP Uh, program that, you know, we used to think of as food stamps, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That's an uh, an electronic benefit transfer. And so Congress created a special program during this pandemic called Pandemic EBT to add dollars to the the cards, the electronic benefit cards of SNAP recipients. Unfortunately, that has expired. Uh, Congress, as you know, has been kind of paralyzed and polarized. And um, uh, Nancy Pelosi and the administration have not been able to reach an agreement on uh, what was considered a very important fifth package of relief. And if it doesn't come, um, Americans are just going to be terribly hurt. There's just no way that the state and local communities and the nonprofits can can keep up with this level of need. Congress must act. And we have a long term problem here as well that may have been exacerbated
1: by the virus, which is housing. Has become incredibly expensive compared to you know what it used to be thirty forty years ago. On top of that, the cost of health care is high. The amount of money that people are having to put out just for rent, mortgage, whatever, even at the low mortgage rates now, are are just a, a huge amount of what comes into the family, and that's not leaving a lot for things like you know putting food on the table. Some people are choosing
2: roof over your head or food on the table. That's right. One of the most heartbreaking things I've seen uh, since this started was a story on CBS uh, about evictions in Houston and families who talked about exactly what you just said, which is we had to make a choice whether to you know, feed our kids and our family or to pay the rent. And we couldn't do both. Uh, and they ultimately started to get hit by these uh, evictions. So, again, something on this scale. Uh, we need public policy. The the philanthropic and the, the charitable sector can only go so far. But it's also revealing, and what you've just described, Gil, is revealing some of these underlying structural uh, inequities in our economy. And hopefully, we'll get to the point where we say we not only need to feed people and kids and families, because that's the humane and the right thing to do, but we need to address some of the issues that have to do with why they're hungry in the first place. And we need to create Opportunity and we need to address systemic racism and we need to invest in education. If we don't do these things, we're going to be having this conversation over and over and over again. As a final thing, and to leave on a message of hope and
1: give us the feeling there's something to build on and all, besides philanthropic groups doing a tremendous job, such as the No Kid Hungry campaign, we've seen some schools. And districts doing, I mean, just some really clever things like busing meals, actually taking the meals to bus stops around the areas where, you know, parents can't uh, get to the places where the food is distributed and making sure meals are getting to families. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people really doing some really good stuff out there. It's, it's not so big that it makes the news, but it's really big for the people affected.
2: Well, that's absolutely right. And we've heard and seen and even supported and funded uh, a lot of examples of this type of innovation when it comes to uh, feeding kids. One of the most important things was simply uh, something that we acted on at the very beginning of the pandemic, which was to change the laws and the regulations that said a child had to come and pick up one meal. Uh, now somebody else can come on that child's behalf. They can pick up five or 10 meals or whatever they need. But schools are also doing some innovative things. One of the things I mentioned earlier earlier. Um, The El Monte school system, uh, one of the things that they're doing that is so vital for families who want to get back to work is they've taken the schools and although the schools themselves are closed and all learning is virtual and distance learning, they're making child care centers out of the schools. So your kids can come to school they're still going to be learning remotely online. The teachers won't be. They'll they'll be, they'll be at the other end of the Zoom screen, but there will be somebody at the school to watch and take care of your kids in very small groups of six to eight or 10 that are socially distanced. And if your kids are too young to be in school, you can bring them there for child care as well. So here, you know, one of the great struggles that everybody's having is even if you do have a job, how do you go back to your, to your work if your kids are uh, at home because their schools are closed. El Monte has figured that out and is providing this vital service. It's, I think it's a great example of the kind of innovation that you were referring to, Gil. And ultimately, it gives me hope that you know our ingenuity and our commitment to doing the right thing is ultimately going to prevail here.
1: Billy Shore has, of course, aided in that for a long time now, founder and executive chair of Share Our Strength, the parent organization for the No Kid Hungry campaign. Billy, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've covered many ways over these many months how America might be changed forever by the COVID-19 outbreak. Some are obvious, some sail a bit under the radar, and are so day-to-day they happen almost without our notice. One of those is shopping for food. Our habits have changed. But are they in ways that have changed us forever? Laura Riley is the business of food reporter at the Washington Post and previously a food critic at the Tampa Bay Times, San Francisco Chronicle, and Baltimore Sun, has written four books and a graduate of the California Culinary Academy. So she knows her food. Laura, good to talk to you. How are you?
3: Oh, thanks for having me today.
1: We're already seeing some changes that we do notice: a shift to fewer shopping trips, which means buying more stuff with a longer shelf life. The unfortunate thing about that is that means more processed food, that probably is less healthy.
3: That is absolutely the case. Um, so certainly, early on in, in March and April, we saw the, the mad stockpiling and the, the hoarding, and the you know the great toilet paper debacle of 2020. Um, but it's we've kind of settled into a groove where we shop in-store less frequently, are, we're spending a lot more money, uh, we're doing it more swiftly, so more money, less time, which obviously right there leaves less time for kind of the serendipity of finding something new.
1: Yeah, that serendipity of finding something new is not just being able to scan the grocery aisles, there's also no free samples at the big box stores or at... Uh, some of the specialty stores or anywhere else. And that's how I found out about some of the stuff I now love that I otherwise would have just passed by. If you're ordering online or if you're in a rush, the easiest thing to do is just to hit that buy again tab.
3: Yeah, I think that most of us in an online shopping situation start with our previous cart. And so that is going to augur, obviously, for what we've purchased in the past and leave a lot less room for um, exploration. You know, I think that that one of the experts I talked to said online shopping is more like spearfishing that you, you know, you you get online and you say Heinz ketchup and, you know, bada bing, it comes up and it's in your cart and you're done. And so it doesn't leave you time to kind of meander that that condiment aisle and go, oh, Sir, Sir Kensington, that looks good. You know, so I think that there are a lot of fledgling brands or kind of um you know independent smaller brands that may have uh, really been injured by our shopping patterns in the
1: past few months. Yeah, one of the other things we can do that was good for our health, but also helped us find new products was you could read the contents. And besides just things like calories or cholesterol, the healthy, healthy stuff, I could look at a jar of jam and see whether the first ingredient, which is always what it has the most of, is fruit or sugar. If it's fruit, I try it. If it's sugar, I know it's going to taste like all that fruit flavored candy that doesn't actually taste like fruit and put it back. That sort of choice and in information is difficult if you're buying from home.
3: Absolutely. So if you're buying online, you don't see that back of the package. Uh, and you certainly are not doing comparisons between the two. And even in-store, our, our habits have changed. And, you know, this is going to be an overgeneralization, but a lot more men say they are shopping in person in stores since the beginning of the pandemic. And generally speaking, they uh, spend less time browsing. They they go in with a list. They, they get it done. You know, it's they're, they're in, they're out. So I think that there has been overall less opportunity for a new uh company or a new product to capture your interest. And then, you know, you think of all of the, the ways in which a, a new product or a new product line get to market, you know, they, they go to the fancy food show, they go to Expo West or one of the big conventions every year, um, which this year are all canceled, or they, you know, a lot of products will debut at a sporting event or at Bonnaroo or something like that. And since most of those kinds of events have been canceled, or at least for this summer, um, some of those opportunities to send up a trial balloon have really been um, eliminated.
1: So is the fact that we're more used to buying things online, we have more connectivity, does that mean that delivery is here to stay? Or is that something that may just be here for now and then goodbye again?
3: I think that it's a completely different landscape, partly because of the smartphone. So people are buying you know, you're standing in line somewhere, you're in a you're at the dentist's office, you have an opportunity, you can do your grocery shopping right then and there. So I think that the advent of the smartphone has really facilitated a lot of people um, to move to online shopping. I mean that the, the, the tagline now is like omnichannel, that people are going to be shopping in multiple ways. So for things that we buy routinely, um, that are kind of unsexy things like pet food and paper goods and coffee and bubbly water we may all pivot to an online subscription type uh, ordering thing, a regular, something that you know that you're going to want every week or every month. We may just um, just put in a standing order for those things. So the things that we might go to the grocery store for are the things that kind of, you know, get our hearts pitter pattering a little bit more, you know, kind of, Seafood and imported chocolates and fancy cheese and a nice bottle of wine. So those kinds of things and produce. I mean, we still like to shop in person for those things. But a lot of those center aisles of the grocery store may go to a more kind of subscription ongoing uh, online delivery model.
1: Well, this gets us to maybe a different kind of grocery store in the future because the kind of thing that you were talking about, produce, because one of the problems with those delivery services in the 80s was people would try to order fruit and it was bruised and the lettuce was wilted. You weren't picking it out yourself. But those things you talked about, the the chocolates, the produce, the seafood, uh you know, meats, all that kind of thing, those are the kinds of things that more specialized smaller stores like, say, Trader Joe's, has done very, very well with. and But they don't have the big selection of all the other stuff that grocery stores do. But if we're ordering all that other stuff online, it sounds like smaller specialty stores may be the future and the giant supermarkets may be hurting.
3: We'll see. But I think a lot of the experts that I've spoken to suggest that that is the direction things will go. So we've, we've just been through, I mean, since World War II, Supermarkets have done nothing but grow in terms of square footage, in terms of the number of SKUs, like the, the barcode units. So, in you know 1975, an average grocery store had 9,000 SKUs, you know, individual barcodes. Um, the beginning of this year, that number was 40,000 per in an average kind of supermarket. And that since the, the pandemic hit, that, that number has really contracted, not just in the U.S., but in kind of the top 10 retail com- countries around the world. There's been a, a diminution in the number of products on offer. Um, and, and experts say that that may continue in that direction.
1: That's interesting, though. So that may mean if we just keep ordering the stuff we've ordered in the past because we already know what it is and we don't see the new stuff and the algorithms on whatever we're using to order from keep saying, hey, you've bought this, that may mean just Cheetos flavored Cheetos. And if they come up with chili flavored, you know, all those kinds of things, we may not see that stuff as much. Well,
3: and I think there are more insidious things that that may occur as a result of this. So, you know, for instance, you know, we've always been manipulated in stores, you know, they're the end caps, the bogos, the you know, slotting fees that a, a, a major company like General Mills or ConAgra will pay a grocery store to get their product precisely where you're going to notice it most. So we've always been manipulated in-store. But the ability to target market um, directly to us, to have come, something come up top of search that is specific to our what we've ordered in the past, um, it, it really does allow a much more strategic approach in pitching us what we like. And the problem with that is that people who order healthy foods are going to be pitched more of the same and people who have kind of, you know, it's all red vines and jolly ranchers, you know, as our kind of pandemic coping mechanism, we're going to be pitched more of the same, you know, so I think that there's a lot of concern that you know we've spent the past bunch of years talking about food deserts and food swamps it's very possible that online purchasing could become the ultimate food swamp for people who have historically made bad purchases or you know unhealthy purchases um, they will just be inundated with ads for similar products
1: okay final thing when we talk about this idea of delivery urban areas suburban areas you know great we have a lot of listeners of course all across the country they're in those areas but there're also people in exurban and rural areas where the distance delivery would have to go might make it expensive where the extra charge for that may be a big deal from stores or maybe they would need specially refrigerated trucks for everything to make sure that you know the Frozen food doesn't just thaw in the time it's being delivered. Is this a thing that parts of the country are going to see, but other parts of the country may not?
3: Absolutely. And as we've we've heard all of this talk in the past few weeks about the US Postal Service and that they really do represent the last mile for a lot of a lot of companies, even for FedEx and and, you know UPS. So clearly rural and exurban areas. Um may not have that that opportunity to get delivery, and I think this is especially interesting for people who are on um, food assistance, so for the first time in kind of American history, people who are on snap, you know what we used to call food stamps or on pandemic e- EBT, which is this kind of the free and reduced lunch uh, while school is not going on. so for students who would have been eligible, they have a kind of a pandemic debit card, basically. And for both of those things, just recently, the USDA has allowed that they can, people can purchase things online. Well, if people live in an area where Amazon doesn't go or Walmart, or, you know, they, they don't have the opportunities uh, for those kind of deliveries, they may, there may be barriers to access.
1: Laura Riley is the business of food reporter at the Washington Post. Laura, thank you so much for being with us.
3: It's been a pleasure.
1: You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Whether you agree with scientists that climate change is caused by human activity or not, the change itself is very real and in many ways already calamitous in a manner most scientists thought might not yet be a problem for decades. Temperatures are rising like 114 degrees this week in my former hometown of Novato, California, which is just north of San Francisco, a place usually so cool most people do not have air conditioning because other than a day or two a year, who needed it? A couple of major reports on climate change came out this past week, one from the United States government, one from the U.N. And CBS News meteorologist and climate specialist Jeff Berardelli joins us now. Jeff, good to have you with us. How are you?
0: Glad to be here. Great to be here.
1: I have been talking to friends in Northern California and Oregon and Washington state, and even though those who are many miles from the more than 2 million acres that are burning say the sky is black and they are choking on ash. And people with asthma and COPD say they're essentially trapped in their homes. Others, of course, have had to evacuate. How bad are things?
0: Yeah, from the perspective of a meteorologist and climate specialist, which is what I do for CBS News, I've never seen it this bad before. Uh, And it really is without precedent what's happening right now across the West Coast. Uh, There's not nearly enough resources to keep up with all the fires. So some of the fires are going to not be fought, basically. Uh, And um, to be honest with you, I don't see how some people at least can reasonably assume that they can live in that area much longer if these types of fire seasons uh, continue because it's driving people to evacuate more than once a year in some cases. And it really is horrible for long and short-term health. People with asthma, short-term, long-term, it can cause some serious lung and heart conditions. Uh, we know that. About 7 million people around the world die prematurely from indoor and outdoor pollution. So pollution is a serious uh, you know, epidemic that we don't often speak of very much. But beyond that, um, it's hard to get insurance on your home in places like California without it causing or costing an absorbent amount of money. So for various reasons, uh, these fire seasons are making it very difficult to live in, especially places like California.
1: Okay. I mentioned those two reports in your introduction. Let's get to them. And let's start with the latest from the United States government, a report from NOAA. We are seeing record heat. We are also seeing drought. That's a pretty terrible combination.
0: Yeah, so heat waves are getting worse. Drought is getting worse. In fact, uh, the West um, is seeing one of its worst droughts in 1,200 years. So, there's a study done by Columbia University. They look back at all kinds of proxy records. And what they found out is since 2000, we have entered a mega drought. And in fact, it's one of the worst of six or so mega droughts that we've had in the past 1,200 years. So when you have a year where you have this long-standing drought which has been going on generally for 20 years and then you have a year specifically which has been very dry this particular year, then you add to it two heat waves which are both of them somewhat unprecedented heat wave in heat waves in their own right, which are made worse by climate change. Um, in California, heat waves have gotten about three to four degrees Fahrenheit hotter than they were in the early part of the 1900s. So you have, you know, this long-term and short-term thing going on, combining for what has been the worst fire season on record by far in California history, and the worst of the fire season is we are just entering right now. Uh, We've already burned uh, more than three times what's the average for a whole season. So
1: on the West Coast, especially higher temperatures dry the land, that becomes kindling. So all you need to is a spark for basically what is, again, kindling, a carelessly tossed cigarette. One awful case, a gender reveal party with a smoke machine. But something else that people ask me a lot about, I can't answer it, you can which is dry
0: lightning. What is it with that? So we had an unusual circumstance in the middle of August where, you know, there was a decaying tropical cyclone off the of Baja, California. That's not unusual. However, the moisture made it all the way up into central California at the time, when there was a tremendous, almost unprecedented heat wave going on. So now you have a heat wave and you have these thunderstorms, which have just enough moisture to be thunderstorms, but not enough moisture to really wet the land, but producing tons of lightning. One of the worst displays of lightning we've had. This is what happens. Climate change kind of sets the table. It sets the stage. It it gets everything in place for when some weird situation like this happens, where you get all these lightning strikes, everything is sitting there waiting to go up, in flames, and that's what happened in the middle of August. And now we get this concurrence of another extreme heat wave across California, which helped to spark even more fires. And then, as crazy as it seems, an in- incredibly intense cold front drops to the south, causes two feet of snow in parts of Colorado, record low temperatures in the 20s and 30s, temperature swings of 60 to 70 degrees. But it also forces wind into California. Utah had wind gusts over 100 miles an hour, California had wind gusts. 40, 50, 60 plus miles an hour, which of course enhances the fires and makes them out of control and firefighters cannot possibly keep up with the fires. So climate climate change doesn't cause any of this. It just sets the stage and it makes everything kind of more ready for these extreme events to happen when the weather cooperates or doesn't cooperate, depending upon the way you look at it.
1: Coming up, CBS News meteorologist Jeff Berardelli talks about another new report about our climate future. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross, and we've been talking to CBS News meteorologist Jeff Berardelli about climate and the fires and the flooding and the storms we've been having. And Jeff, in the last segment, I made a brief mention of two reports on climate. We've talked about the one from NOAA, but there's also a U.N. report. And what's that show?
0: Well, the U.N. report basically says that we're not doing a good job, that we're not going to make our Paris Agreement goals that we're not going to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming since pre-industrial times. And we may not make two degrees. In fact, it's pretty likely we're not going to make two degrees. It talked a little about uh, the decrease in emissions um, that we've seen this year because of COVID-19, but it's not even going to really make a dent in concentrations of carbon dioxide and methane, which continue to go up. And it just talks about how much drastic action that we need to take. But- Here's one important part of the report that I think is worth talking about which is you know this presents an opportunity covid-19 and all of the you know the money that that governments are infusing into economies all over the world and in the United States can be used as an opportunity to you know basically put lots of money into sustainable and renewable energy which is the future i mean this is where the jobs are being created this is the future of energy. It's the future of cars, you know, electric cars. That is, in fact, the future, no matter how you slice it. So we might as well use this money to grow those future industries. Now, Europe is doing that to some degree. The United States really has not been doing much of any of it. And it's something that the UN is imploring the world to do, use this as an opportunity to combat climate change and create jobs.
1: We did a story a few weeks ago about how several agencies within the Trump administration, um, including the Army Corps of Engineers and um, uh, housing and and others are saying, look, In terms of rebuilding after floods, we'll give you the money to rebuild, as we always have, but not where you were. Because of what's going on and because of the the changes in the climate, we think these areas, if you've been flooded out a couple of times, are going to keep flooding, so you can rebuild, but not there anymore. Are we looking at a situation where, because of flooding on the East Coast, Gulf Coast, and parts of the Midwest, fires in the west coast and northwest are we looking at parts of the united states where basically we're just going to have to either give up inhabiting or give up feeling safe there or insured there
0: yes the answer is yes i mean i i talked to a friend of mine who lives in california her daughter just moved to new york because she has asthma and she couldn't take the smoke and uh, she says she has other folks that she's friends with who are going to be moving as well. So we see that happening in California. You can imagine why. I mean, think about how scary it is to, to get a phone call in the middle of the night, you know, telling you to rush and get out of your house or, you know, that call from the insurance company that says we're either not going to insure you or, by the way, if we do insure you, your rates are going to go up by 10 times. It just doesn't seem feasible. Now, we're seeing that play out a little more slowly along the Gulf coast and the Atlantic coast where sea level is rising, but you can bet that insurance companies are going to make it harder to get insurance and mortgage companies are going to make it much harder to get mortgages. So all of a sudden your investment, which is probably half of your net worth is no longer that is not, is no longer worth much if it's your home. So, you know, there are tremendous um, life issues and economic issues that climate change is going to cause. I always like to say, you know, It's better to get your tooth drilled now than to get a root canal later. We ought to put the money up to try to prevent the worst of climate change or to adapt to what is built in because undoubtedly we're going to see worse impacts of climate change even if we stopped using fossil fuels tomorrow. We ought to put the money up now to save ourselves trillions and trillions of dollars in the future. Believe me when I tell you it's going to cost us a lot more money and there are plenty of studies that show it if we don't do anything than if we start mitigating and adapting right now.
1: Last thing, uh, I've been to the North and South Pole. I've camped out at both places, and at places in Greenland and Antarctica. I have walked on ice masses that do not, in fact, exist anymore. And rising seas from ice melts are endangering our coast, and some coastal military bases, too, which is why all of this alarms the Pentagon as well. I mentioned at the beginning of this that this is happening faster than people thought in fact some people who thought uh, you know not that many years ago that some documentaries made about this were unnecessarily alarmist in terms of time are now saying wow uh, it's actually happening faster than that and we were wrong i mean has this speeded up or are we just in a short period here where it seems that way or or what
0: yeah, we think that the impacts have accelerated, um, but not just that. That our computer models simply underestimated how much of an impact human caused climate change would have on different extremes, depending upon which ones you're talking about, whether they be fires or ice melt. Uh, we are tracking a worst case scenario in glacier melt, especially ice sheet melt in Greenland and Antarctica. Um, we are on the hook for likely uh you know maybe another six inches to 12 inches of sea level rise by 2050 and then probably another two to three feet on top of that by 2100 it's going to accelerate fast the second half of the century um and we're putting this big huge burden on our children's shoulders they're the ones that are gonna have to fight this um so yeah this is happening faster i don't think there's a climate scientist on earth who would tell you that that what's happening is not what was predicted I think most would agree that it's happening probably faster than either they thought it was going to, or that the computer model said that it was. I'm working on a story for CBS News Today on that exact thing. So um, what we're seeing in California is going to become the rule, not the exception. And you know, someone put it in, in what I thought were stark terms, which is 2020 may be the warmest year on record, but instead of thinking of it as the warmest year we've ever experienced, Think of it as the coolest year we will ever experience ever again. (laughs) Or, you know, the fires in 2020 were the worst we ever experienced, but very well may be the norm or one of the least active fire seasons that we experience going forward in the next few decades. Now, that might be a bit of an exaggeration because I think 2020 is a bit of an anomaly in terms of fires. But these type of seasons will occur more frequently in the future. They may not happen in 2021 or 2022 or 2023. But you can bet they're going to happen that a season like this is going to happen again within the next five years. And then it will happen much more often and much more frequently after that.
1: CBS News meteorologist and climate specialist Jeff Berardelli. Uh, thank you, I guess, I
0: mean, for the heads up. But. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, should I, can I at least say to you this, that we have a choice to make. We can make a better future for ourselves. And I really mean that. I'm an optimistic person, but I I believe it to be true. It's not like everyone's life on Earth is grand and wonderful, right? If we just can think bigger and, and and are willing to make changes and do some hard work, we can actually have a better life. Not only a life with cleaner atmosphere and a better environment and a better climate, but an economy with better, higher paying jobs where you know, towns in middle America are revived and not dying. These are all what we think are definites if we combat climate change. Climate change provides us a fork in the road and an opportunity to create a better life. You know, research has shown, and there was a report that came out recently that said if we quickly transition to electrify most of the U.S. economy in the next 15 years – It will create 25 million good paying American jobs here in the United States. So the bottom line is we have a choice to make and we can make a better life for everybody. But we just have to do the hard work. And, you know, so far, we haven't been willing to do it.
1: CBS News meteorologist and climate specialist Jeff Berardelli. Jeff, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever. From the CBS Audio Network, I'm Gil Gross. One way America changes in so many ways depends on the election just over a month and a half away. This past week, news was made by a book based on interviews Bob Woodward did with President Trump. This weekend on 60 Minutes, Woodward speaks to CBS News correspondent Scott Pelley, starting with this from the president about the SARS-CoV-2 virus.
4: It goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. This is deadly stuff.
1: Three weeks after that call, the president said this to the public.
4: It's a little like the regular flu that we have flu shots for. And we'll essentially have a flu shot for this in a fairly quick manner. Yeah, go ahead.
1: In that February 7th interview, it's clear that the president knows what the stakes are, but he's not sharing that with the public at that time. Yes, this is the tragedy. A president of the United States has a duty to warn. The public will understand that, but if they get the feeling that they're not getting the truth, then you're going down the path of deceit and cover-up. Here's CBS News White House correspondent Ben Tracy with more on the tapes and more context.
4: On March 19th, with nearly 200 Americans dead, the president admitted to Woodward in audio obtained by the Washington Post that he deliberately misled the country about the danger. Well, I th- Club really, to be honest with you, sure. I want you to. I be. wanted to. Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, yeah, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. Stay calm. Uh, it will go away. You know it. You know it is going away. The president knew in early February the virus was highly contagious, but on March 31st, with more than 5,000 Americans dead, he defended himself this way. I think the one thing nobody really knew about this virus was how contagious it was. It's so incredibly contagious, and nobody knew that. President Trump claimed he was just being a good leader Thank by not much. creating I fear. Americans. And uh, certainly I'm not going to uh, drive uh, this country or the world into a frenzy. We want to show confidence. We want to show strength. We want to show strength as a nation. And that's what I've done, and we've done very well. The bombshell book, titled *Rage*, published by Simon and Schuster, a division of Viacom CBS, is based in part on 18 on-the-record interviews the legendary journalist conducted with the president between December and July, apparently recorded with his knowledge. So, how much
1: of a re-election problem might this be for the president again? Ben Tracy.
4: This could be very damaging for them and for a couple of reasons. One, it's the president's own voice on a tape, so they can't really deny it. You hear the president saying it there. And, you know, there's been a lot of criticism about some of the things that President Trump has said about coronavirus, his handling of it. Uh, But now we know that he actually knew the seriousness of it behind the scenes, that it wasn't just that he was uninformed. He knew what was happening, and he was saying very different things in public. The president came out and called it a political hit job, even though it's his own words on the tape, especially when it comes to these issues over the coronavirus. Uh, but the president then went on to say that basically he is a cheerleader for the country and that he thinks uh, the hallmarks of a strong leader is to project strength and confidence and that that is what he was doing all along.
1: You've been listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by Paul Whitty Woodhall and District Productive. I'm Gil Gross.
4: The Hargan women seem to have it all.
0: From the outside looking in, we we're, were blessed. My mom...